confession of faith. We're not going to confess this together. I'll read it um, because we're continuing this series working through the Shorter Catechism. And we're on question and answer seven. So I thought I'd put it here and read it so it's fresh in our minds. And then we'll go to the scriptures. So question and answer seven. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Old Testament text is Psalm 33. Uh, the, the key text really is 33.11, but we'll read the whole psalm just to have it all in our view. Psalm 33. It's page 496 in the Church Bible if you'd like to follow along there. This is the living and abiding Word of God. Let's give our full attention to it. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people He has chosen as His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of His dwelling, He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in You. And our New Testament reading, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. It's page 1037, if you want to follow along there in the church Bible. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Again, we'll be keying in on verses 11 through 14, um, uh, but, but we'll read 3 through 14 for the full picture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, 
by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know we need your word. Your word alone gives life. Your word alone uh, builds us up and strengthens us. It's, it's, it's you that we need now. So please speak by your word. And Lord, make us to listen. We know in ourselves we, we cannot take this word into our own hearts and we cannot make our own hearts receptive to it and, and fruitful in faith and obedience. Only you can. So we pray that you would do so. For Jesus' sake, amen. The doctrine here that we're considering tonight, the teaching of the absolute and limitless sovereignty of God over absolutely everything, is, uh, it's found on every page of Scripture. It's either there in the foreground in some of these texts that we've seen tonight, or it's there in the background. It's there, loved ones, because it's true, first of all. all right, scripture reveals to us what is true. And so God is revealing us to us this, this wonderful doctrine because it is true. He's also revealing this to us because we need this teaching. It's a very useful teaching to recognize the absolute and unlimited sovereignty of God over everything. It's this teaching which is able to comfort us which is able to give us courage and give us peace in the midst of hardships. It's this doctrine that sustains so many in Scripture. We read their stories, right? Think of Joseph. Joseph, he goes through so much there at the end of the book of Genesis. His brothers sell him into slavery. Um, they don't expect to ever see him again. They, 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 uh, they're, they're trying to get rid of him. They hate him. He barely escaped with his life. They sell him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. Uh, and, and once he's there in Egypt, he starts to improve his lot by, by being a good slave. But, he, he, you know, after a time, he's, uh, he's lied about, he's slandered, he's falsely accused, and he's thrown in prison. And then he does, you know, he's, he, he's the best prisoner he can be. Uh, he, he obeys those over him. He keeps on doing the right thing, and it never seems to work out for him. Uh, he's there, and he's, uh, he gets a chance to get out of prison, but the man who's going to get him out forgets slips his mind after Joseph uh, uh, told him that he was going to. 
uh, be saved and spared. And so Joseph, you know, he goes through all this. And, and finally, in the Lord's providence, it does, it does work out at the end of the story, of course. But, but he says to his brothers there, uh, as he's met them again at the end of the story in the book of Genesis, and he says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You meant to do me harm. You hated me and you were trying to harm me. God was blessing me in the midst of all that. And it's that truth. It's not just like a, a, I don't think that was just something Joseph realized in a light bulb moment after the, the nice ending to the story. I think that was there the whole time for him. Understanding that God is in control of this. And, and yes, all these people are against me for evil. God is for me for good. And that's far more significant. I think that's what sustained him. We could look at other stories in Scripture where we see the same thing. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're, they're in exile. Uh, they're young, young men, probably teenagers. They've been um, taken into exile far from home. They're there. They're being pressured in, in Babylon. They're being pressured uh, to just accommodate the, the king's wishes. And there's a threat of death, if, a death if, they, if they don't bow down to this statue and worship. And they don't. And they have this confidence that God is able to save them if He wants to. And if He doesn't want to, He's still God and He's still in control. That's what they say to King Nebuchadnezzar as they stand before the blazing hot furnace. Our God can deliver us if He wants to. And if He doesn't want to, He's still in control. And we're going to trust Him. It's what sustains them. It's what sustains the New Testament church as well. Think of the... uh, uh, the, the early church there, Acts chapter 4, uh, they're suffering persecution and they come together uh, after they've been beaten, some of them, for testifying to the risen Christ. They come together and they have a prayer meeting. And they get down and they, they say in Acts 4.24, Sovereign Lord, acknowledging God's control. And in their prayer they say, continue to give us boldness. They know that God is in control, even of these things, that they're suffering, and so they're praying to Him. So loved ones, this is a useful doctrine. This is a doctrine that sustains faith and faithfulness, this teaching. It's the doctrine that behind absolutely everything that happens is God's eternal purpose, His eternal purpose, His plan. What I want to do this evening together is um, look at three aspects of God's eternal purpose We're going to be focusing most of our attention on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and a little bit of the context there. And we're also going to draw some from Psalm 33, verse 11. So we're going to look at three aspects of God's eternal purpose in those two texts. And then we're going to look a little bit also at what it means, what it means for us, how we apply it to our own lives. First thing I want to look at then is the scope of God's purpose. God is sovereign. The scriptures say it. What's the scope of this sovereignty? Right? How, far is, how far does it extend? How, does it, how far does it, does it reach? How, how, how much control does God actually have? Some people argue that, um, uh, I've heard this before, that mankind sort of like a group of passengers on a boat. And uh, God's controlling where the boat's going. But he's not controlling, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not sovereign over the actions of the people on the boat itself. He's going to make sure in the end, you know, the, the boat goes where it needs to go, but he's not, you know, he's not sovereign over uh, what's actually going on on the boat itself. I've heard others argue that God causes good things. Yes, he's sovereign over the blessings that he sends, but he's not sovereign over sin. He's not sovereign over suffering. 
that He didn't will for Adam and Eve to sin. That that was outside of His plan. That that was a, a mistake, a glitch. Something out of His control that He had just to make the best of. For others say that God really isn't sovereign in any real sense at all. That He's um, almost like a superhero. You know, lots of power, but no, not, not control over everything. He's just doing the best He can to react to the situation. Very much a, uh, a, a low view of God. How much control does God actually have? Scripture teaches us over against all these other things. Scripture teaches that God's sovereignty extends uh, over absolutely everything. It says that His, uh, His sovereignty is over everything. We see uh, Psalm 33.11. It tells us that God has an eternal plan. It says that God's, God has his, his, his plan and His counsels that He's considered from all eternity. Ephesians 1.11 agrees. It speaks of how God works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's like as though God has this eternal screenplay that He's had written from before the foundation of the world of every act, in every moment, in every line. That's how far His sovereignty extends. Scripture says, first of all, that the sovereignty of God encompasses all things. Ephesians 1.11 says He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Does all things mean all things? Is, is Paul exaggerating? I don't think so. What about, um, you know, what about the, the minutia? Right? What about the roll of the dice? Proverbs 16.33 says, The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So yes, all things, I think, means all things in Ephesians 1.11. Everything in the history of the world. Nothing too small to be outside His sovereign control out of His eternal decree. Nothing too big to be uh, outside of His control or outside of His decree. From elections and wars to breakfast tomorrow. It's all according to His plan. Not only, though, we see it encompasses all things, not only all things, we also see in the text we've read, it encompasses all time. There's no expiration date on his counsel, on his plan. Psalm 33.11 says that the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. In, in context there, the psalmist is talking about two aspects of God's eternal purpose. First, he's talking about how God created the world. He says right there in the psalm in verses 6 to 7, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Then in verse 9, He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The psalmist is saying God's decree brought into existence everything that there is, and that decree is going to stand forever. It has staying power. It's going to stick around. It's going to continue its effect. It's not going to wear out or wear off. And the psalmist is, is, is pointing to these, uh, these things that we know to be reliable and firm, the foundations of the earth, you know, the, 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 the very laws of nature as we call them. Point us to the unchangeableness of God. The second thing, though, that he's talking about is, is uh, God's purpose to save his covenant people. 
It talks about how God is sovereign in creating the world and also sovereign to save his people. Verse 12 of Psalm 33 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So the point, I think, that Psalm 33 verse 11 is making in context here is this. God's eternal purpose for his people lasts forever. His eternal purpose for his people lasts forever. It does not wear down under you know, the effects of time. God, you know, we might think you know, uh, uh, human endurance only lasts so long. And a plan we make only lasts so long. And it only puts up with so many obstacles. Not his plan. That's what Psalm 3311 is telling us. Uh, no opposition, no, no enemies of God's people can, can thwart his plans for them. And they themselves can't thwart his plans for them. I guess that, isn't that amazing? That, uh, that, that the, the very um, sinfulness and faithlessness and stubbornness of God's own people can't wear out or thwart his purpose for them, for us. So, loved ones, here's the, here's the payoff then of this first thing we're looking at together. There is no, uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no matter in your life, nothing in your life, no thing in your life, and there's no moment in your life outside of the sovereign purposes of God for you. There's nothing in your life that happens to you that is outside of God's eternal plan for you. There's no person and there's no power that can change that. Not even you can thwart that for him. Your suffering and your sinfulness are both encompassed by his decree. How can our sin even be? Right? God doesn't desire that we sin. He wants us to be holy like himself. But yet in the, in the mysteries of his providence, even our sin falls out according to his decree. His eternal decree. And it doesn't wreck us because he's faithful to save us. Alright, that's, that's the first thing we see here. The, the scope of God's purpose. It's over absolutely everything. All things, all time. What does this all lead to then? Right, so God, God has destined us for, for every... He, he's planned out everything for us. He, he, he's given us, yes, responsibility. Yes, we, need to, we, we are responsible for our choices, but he's, he's decreed it all from before the foundation of the world. But what does all this lead us to? What's the fruit of God's plan for us? This is where the texts lead us to, especially the text in Ephesians, but I think in Psalm 33 as well, it, it hints at this. What is all this resulting in? What's it driving towards? And, and that's what we see next. I'd like to consider together res, the result of God's purpose. We saw the scope of his purpose. Look with me now at the result of God's purpose. What's, what's he doing He's planned it all out. What's the goal? What's he doing to us? What's he doing for us and in us? Where is he taking us? Psalm 33, verse 12, gives us the first bit of uh, insight here. Psalm 33, 12, after saying in verse 11 that God's eternal purpose stands forever, verse 12 says that the Lord has made his people his heritage. He's made them his inheritance. He's made them his possession, his Reward. What's God's purpose and His decree standing forever? It's to make His people His reward. 
That is, a, that, that, is a, that is an incredible thing to consider. What would God need us for? Why would he want us for his reward? He doesn't, he doesn't need us for anything. Right? He is eternally self-sufficient as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does not need us to satisfy any kind of want in himself. He has no lack in himself. But he chooses to create a people and redeem them, and he wants them for himself. And he actually says that we are his inheritance and his heritage and his reward. That's what the text says here. It's wonderful. We are, we are his beloved, his beloved bride. So he's chosen us to be his heritage, Psalm 33 says. And then we look at Ephesians chapter 1 where we were, and it says that he's chosen, uh, he's chosen us, he's chosen each of us, uh, that we might come to an inheritance as well. So he's, he's chosen us to be his inheritance, and he's chosen us so that we might have an inheritance too. If you listen to Ephesians 1.3, it says that he's elected us, chosen us for adoption. Adoption implies an inheritance, right? And then verse 11 makes it explicit. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance that we have according to God's plan. Verse 14 is going to say, tell us that the Spirit is the down payment of the inheritance, the guarantee of our inheritance, uh, uh, until the, the redemption of the purchased possession, verse 14 is, says. The idea there is that until we receive the full installment of the inheritance, uh, the Lord has given us the Spirit as a guarantee that the full, the full inheritance is coming. What is this full inheritance? If we look over to chapter 3, I think we get some insight here. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 21 to 22, I think tell us what the inheritance is. Paul doesn't give it explicitly, but in chapter 3, 21 to 22, I think he gives us uh, a pretty good hint at it. He says, "...in Christ, in, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God." In the Spirit. So over in chapter 1, if you're tracking with me, in chapter 1 he says, you've got the Spirit as the down payment of the inheritance. What's the Spirit doing? He's building the church into a temple, into a dwelling place for God. So I think, I think what, uh, what Paul is saying here is that our inheritance is that we are the dwelling place for God. Our inheritance is God Himself. Even as we, even as we saw this morning, right? God with us. That's, that's the point of our redemption and our salvation, that God would come and be with us. That's the inheritance, I think, that is in view here. And Paul is saying, the reason you've obtained this inheritance is that God has predestined you for it. This is the, this is the fruit of His eternal plan for you. He's predestined you for this. This is the part of the eternal decree that God highlights here. Our predestination to salvation. Loved ones, God chose you from before the foundation of the world. Before He, before he laid the earth's foundations, put the stars in the sky, He chose you. Chose you for Himself that you might inherit Him. I don't know of anything more humbling than that, loved ones. You ever wonder, why did God choose me? We sang this earlier. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there is room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? 
Why did God choose a sinner like me? There's nothing in us, right, that, that would commend us to Him. We weren't a likely candidate for this. But He chose us because He loved us out of His perfect good pleasure. We didn't choose Him. Uh, we didn't choose the inheritance. We rejected it, actually. We were dead in our sins. He came and made us alive that we might be enabled to choose Him. So this is the, this is the fruit, loved ones, of God's purpose for us, that you and I will be made alive by the grace of God according to His eternal plan. What does all this mean for us? Well, like I just, we were just saying, it means that we should be humbled beneath God's sovereign plan for us. We should be comforted, too. If I did not uh, have anything to do with coming to faith in Christ, it was all the sovereign grace of God, and it was, I was only responding to His grace. And if God has planned this from before the foundation of the world, surely He will see me through. But He's not going to give me the Spirit as the down payment and not bring me to glory. His eternal purpose will stand. It's a great comfort. Well, why is God doing all this? We've seen the scope. We've seen the, the fruit of His purpose. What's the goal of His purpose? The purpose of His purpose? Well, of course, uh, it's His own glory. His own glory. Verse 12, Ephesians 1, verse 12. That we should be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14. To the praise of His glory. This is Paul's... This is where Paul keeps coming back to. This, all this decree of God, everything that he's ordained by his sovereign uh, good pleasure is for his glory. This is God's design for everything in the universe, that it would display his, his beauty, his, his worth, his glory. It's his design in saving us as well. Ezekiel 36, 22. Uh, God says to his people, it's not for your sake O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. This, isn't it surprising to hear God tell His people, it's not for your sake. Because right? so much of the time we're used to hearing that it's because of His love for us. And all that's true. But, but ultimately He's saying, it's not for your sake. It's for the glory of my great name. This is the goal of His redemption. This is what the Lord Jesus died for. And loved ones, this has to be the goal of redemption. This has to be what Christ was uh, uh, dying to achieve for us. As Paul writes Ephesians 1 here, and as he's working to this goal of it's all to the praise of the glory of God, uh, he he's, keeps on coming back to this refrain of that our salvation is in Christ. He says it over and over in the chapter. It, all this is in Christ. It's in Him. It's in Christ. It's in Him. He keeps on saying that. And, and, and the glory of God is the only goal that's worthy of such a cost, isn't it? Right? Would Christ come and lay down His life and die for us so that we could get to some other goal than the glory of God? Would He, would he do it so we could uh, have uh, you know, some kind of self-gratification? Would He do it for our glory? No. What, what other goal could there be? Only the glory of God. I remember a sermon I, hear, I heard a while ago by John Piper where he was making this point about how Christ is the, Christ is the ticket, right? The, the ticket into God's presence, the ticket to heaven. But he says he's not just the ticket because sometimes if we take that view of Christ that he's, he's just getting me to something else that I want, 
Piper said, when the show starts, you throw the ticket away. And that's not what we do with Christ. What do we see in Revelation? As what, what are people doing for all eternity? They're worshiping Christ. Yeah, so he's, he's the way into God's presence. He's also the, the, the glory of God's presence. He's the ticket and he's the treasure, as Piper put it so well. And that, that's what Paul is saying here. It's all, all this salvation is in Christ and it's all for the glory of God. Every detail, every last little detail of all of God's decree is aimed at this, His own glory. As we close, loved ones, let's again ask this question. How does all this help our faith? How does all this build us up as a, as a body of believers? How does this help us uh, in the trenches of spiritual warfare and the suffering we're going through? Well, we've seen, we've seen points of application already. Um, but, but in this final point, that, that everything in God's decree is for His glory. This means, loved ones, that we know not just the way that our story ends. Uh, we know that, that our story is going to end in joy and the glory of Christ. This means that we know the way the whole story ends. The story of the church, the story of history. It's all going to come to this conclusion. God being glorified. It's not going to end in a chance explosion or the earth uh, perishing when the sun goes dark, but everything's going to end when Christ comes back and God's judgment is, is, is revealed and His salvation is revealed. Everything is going to end in a worship service to the glory of God. So no matter how bleak and dark and difficult things might appear, how weak the church might appear, or how much God might seem to be pushed to the margins of our culture, we know how it's going to end. It's all tending to the glory of God. So we can have confidence. We can trust Him. We can trust His care. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that all things are according to Your perfect will. Lord, we know that there are many times uh, when we wonder at your providence, and we do not know why you are doing what you are doing. Help us to trust simply that you are the one who is acting. You are good and wise. You are just. You are right, always. Help us to trust you. And Father, work, we pray, work according to your perfect decree to bring about your great glory. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.